Future CEOs, Episode 8. So you want to be a CEO? Sure, go ahead, read your ABCs of managing book. Or if you really want to be a CEO, then keep on listening to this Future CEOs podcast with your host, Gareth Armstrong, as he gets you up close and personal with real-world CEOs thought leaders, and industry experts to learn from their experiences and the insight and wisdom they've gained while leading in these challenging and ever-changing times. Are you ready? Then let's do this. Hi, I'm Gareth Armstrong. Welcome to Future CEOs. Today I'm speaking to Douglas Kruger, who is a professional speaker and an author of a number of different books, his latest title being own your industry, how to position yourself as an expert. Douglas is a very interesting speaker because he is the only speaker to have won the Southern African Championships for Public Speaking five times. That's a record. He's also the only African to have competed in the World Championships and placed in the top three where he actually came second. Over and above just speaking, he has also trained at and for a number of different organizations, BMW, Vodacom, ABSA, Old Mutual, Caltex, F&B, Revlon, uh, and a number of others. In addition to doing some training at these organizations, he's also personally coached a number of top executives, including managing directors, executive directors, CFOs, CEOs, and more. Douglas has also appeared on a number of radio shows. He's written a number of articles, appearing in publications such as Entrepreneur, Sales Guru, and Forbes magazine. I asked Douglas if he wouldn't mind sharing with us, and he kindly agreed. In fact, he invited me over to his home, and that's where we had the conversation that you're about to hear now. Here it is. Enjoy. Douglas Kruger, professional speaker and author. Welcome to Future CEOs. Uh, it's great to have you. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be talking to you. Now, of course, we had you on Cliff Central, but this is a bit of a different conversation. How are you feeling about sharing your journey? I am ready to be opened up and exposed. So okay. bring it on. <laughs> yeah, you were telling me a little bit earlier about 16 and drunk and you didn't know she was a he. Uh, that, that was off the record and I don't remember what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now that we've uh, broken the ice in a big way. Yes, severely. <laughs> <laughs> Please, would you share your journey with us? Some early influences, how you got to be a professional speaker? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I am a full-time professional speaker and author, and uh, it's a bit of an unusual thing. Most people, particularly in their youth, are not aware that there is uh, a career option as a professional speaker. And increasingly these days, you can actually become a full-time expert at a topic. Uh, and it's not at all the way that we're raised. You know, when you're young, you're, you're very much exposed to the conventional jobs. It's become a doctor, become an accountant, and increasingly it's, it's learn IT. And of course, if you go and study IT these days, well, congratulations on achieving a skill, but you're now one of two billion people with it. Mm. So there is a, a counterintuitive idea that says, actually, the person who knows how to think is more prepared for tomorrow's world than the one who was forced to study a very narrow field. Let me just quickly jump in here. Mm. So often speakers are experts in their field. So yeah. you, you, you're talking about becoming an expert, but uh, does it 
not take a PhD to be an expert? You know, many of the people who have PhDs are not recognized as top name experts in their fields, mm. and many top name experts do not have PhDs. Okay. That's not to say that the one necessarily excludes the other. It's really just to say that one doesn't lead to the other. Um, if you take a simple example of the doctors, name a doctor that you know off the top of your head. Most of us really couldn't think of a famous or, a, or an industry-renowned doctor. Mm. But we might be able to name one of the doctors on, on TV. And that's, that's exactly what expert positioning is. It's saying if you are seen in certain platforms, you become the big name in that world. But yeah, I, I was raised very differently. My, my parents never forced me to do anything. They, uh, they loved reading and, and bred that love of learning and reading in me. First novel I ever read, I was eight years old and I read Misery by Stephen King. Mm. My friends say that says a lot about why I am the way I am today. <laughs> but uh, the point there is that they didn't try to force what I learned. They simply inculcated a love of learning. And I think that's a very different approach to really to how most people are raised. Most people are, are very strongly encouraged read between the lines, mm. forced yeah. to take up a certain career path and do what the family expects them to do. I think there's huge merit in actually raising kids the way my parents did, which was love learning, do what you want with your life, follow your passion. Mm. Um, and yes, I do speak on how to be an expert in your industry, but my take is a little bit unusual on that one. My starting point is whatever, whatever it is that you've discovered you love doing, how do you become the top name in that? Mm. Rather than saying, force yourself to be an accountant because your parents say so, now position yourself as an expert. So you went from being in a home where you were encouraged to read and to, to learn and to grow. Mm. How did you get to a point where you then decided that being a professional speaker and an author, uh, author of Own Your Own Industry, we'll talk about that in a moment. How did that come about? Okay. It's, uh, I, I'd love to tell you that when I was 12 years old, I had an epiphany. You know, I was on the road to Tarsus and a bright light surrounded me mm. and uh, a voice said, thou shalt. But what actually me happened too, was... Me too, by the way. Really? Oh, yeah. I thought I saw you on that road. <laughs> You're the guy on the other side walking the other way. That's right. Ah, so... You look different without the beard. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the rope. Yeah. Yeah. What actually happened was when I got to about the age of, um, oh, no, in fact, thinking about it, I was in high school and uh, Toastmasters, the public speaking group, did a public speaking course for kids who wanted to try it out. And I'd always been interested in speaking and acting and theater and drama and all those sorts of things. So I gave it a shot and it was a weekend course. I loved it to the core of my being. To the extent where after school, you, you have to be 18 to join Toastmasters. I made the call to do that. And I did it for two reasons. One, I loved it. And two, I wanted to add something to my CV. Because I've always believed that, you know, while formal qualifications are good, and I have studied, I've, I've got a degree through UNISA, it's very often the soft skills and the things around the edges that actually count for more. Hmm. Um, have, do you know anything about how to lead, how to manage people, how to speak in public? Those sorts of things can actually be the big differentiators. So I, I joined Toastmasters, and at the time I wasn't aware that you could make a career out of professional speaking. After two or three years with the, uh, with the organization, um, I ended up entering their public speaking contests, and those go to world championship level. Now, I haven't won the world championships, but I did manage to come second in 2004. Right. And at the time, I was only 24 years old. I was you know, one of the youngest people to, to get that far. And um, I've won our Southern African Championships for public speaking five times, which is also an, an African record. And as a result of that, this, this public speaking career began to happen around me. Mm. I realized looking around that some of the people in this, this world were doing it professionally and being paid. 
and um, I started to make the transition. Now, it was also a wonderful thing for me because the goal had always been to write books. And I was never sure whether I could actually make a full-time career out of that, you know, write fiction for a living. And in fact, I don't write fiction for a living. I now write business books, but I, I could not be happier than what I am. Because even in the business books, as, as boring as that may sound to a 19 or 20-year-old, I've discovered that business books are also about telling stories and making ideas come alive. And you can bring whatever you want to a business book. It's an, it's an open forum. And I'm now in a situation where the two support each other. I write books about the things that I speak on. I speak on the things that I write books about. Mm. And the more you speak, the more you sell books. The more you sell books, the more you are booked to speak. So our future CEOs, they are really attracted to the idea of owning their industry. Becoming the top name, the greatest in your game. Exactly. Yeah. Which is really partly why we're speaking to you, because you've written a book called Own Your own Industry. Own Your Industry. And it's, it's exactly how to do that. Let me say that properly. Own Your Industry. You're not the only one to do that. <laughs> Four out of five people that I ever talk to call it Own Your Own Industry. Okay. For some reason, that phrase just seems to run off the tongue. All but right, yeah, well, it's just called Own Your Industry, How to Position Yourself as an Expert. Yeah, How to Position Yourself as an Expert. Okay, talk us through how this came about. Right. Well, this was looking around at across industries, whether it's looking at, say, a Jeremy Clarkson, the presenter of Top Gear, or Nigella Lawson in the world of uh, chefs and cooking and food preparation, or whether it's someone like a, a Richard Branson in the more, more corporate side of things. It dawned on me that in every industry, there were people who were doing it differently. And they became the top names, the top CEOs, the top brand, the top icon by design. Mm. They, they are doing something different on purpose. And I started working backwards from that and going, what are these people doing differently? Why them? What are they doing that sets them apart? Because mm -hmm. being set apart is worth, on average, 10 times as much income as being a, a non-celebrity or a non-iconic a non top uh, leader. Mm. So there is great equity in being seen as the top name. And it occurs to me that basically there are, there are three things that set these people apart. Now, let me jump in here mm. before we get there. Uh, because I read an article about an individual. Now, I don't remember some of the detail, sadly. But what he did is he set up a Twitter account. And it was a fake account, fake name, fake photo. This person that he was pretending to be or trying to set up had spoken at different events. The, the way that they described him, there were some ambivalent terms. And he had 80,000 followers. And suddenly he became a, a Twitter sensation as a result of this followership and then a couple of ideas that he had, had spoken, but he hadn't really spoken. Yeah. Uh, so it was an, a totally... It was imposed celebrity. Yeah, to yeah, totally fake. So what I want to ask you here or interrogate a little bit with you is the idea of owning your industry versus being perceived to own your industry. Ah, very interesting question. Now, in fact, what I was building up to will in part answer that. Okay. Yeah. So there are three things that you have to have to genuinely own your industry. Mm. When I say genuinely, it is a mix of perceptions and abilities. We actually can't extricate those two and say it's one or the other. But by because, the way, this is in your book, eh? Yes. Yeah. Because the three things that go into being a top name are, the first one is the most obvious one. It's, I call it knowledge. Mm. But now knowledge encompasses everything. It's technical competence. It's ability. It's the, uh, the amount of time you've been in the industry. It's basically, do you know your stuff? Mm. So... That's perhaps addresses what you're, you're almost hinting at with the, the unethical nature of just being seen as a celebrity. Mm. You do have to have the knowledge. You can't fake that. 
Yeah, you will be caught out eventually. Yeah, at some point that yeah, will, at some point that, that, that house of cards has got to come tumbling down. Yeah. Now the second part is the part that most people miss, which is personality. Mm. So that's the theatricality, that's the perceptions, that's the PR, that's the pizzazz around it. Mm. Stage um, presence. The stage presence. Mm. And the third one is publicity. So it's basically saying take those two and take them on a roadshow. Mm. Now take someone like Jeremy Clarkson as a prime example. Jeremy Clarkson is a big personality. I mean, he is a, a really over-the-top controversial figure. Half the world... Uh, think thinks that he's a demigod. The other half wants to burn him at the stake. <laughs> Clarkson doesn't care. He collects his paycheck every month. He's happy. Mm. You know, um, they often have these things on in the newspapers where they say Clarkson warned you will lose it all and and so on. And he says in his own books, he says that the journalists make the stuff up at the BBC. He's never warned. He's never taken to task. You know, it's it's kind of a case of oh Jeremy, don't do that while handing him a bonus because it was so successful. Mm. But now the reality of the thing is that Clarkson is not just a brash personality. He is an extreme example of knowledge and personality and publicity. Clarkson knows his stuff backwards and forwards. He's been in the motoring industry for well over 20 years. So he does legitimately have the knowledge and can add the personality on top of it. So what we tend to miss is that personality element. It's like a, a Richard Branson, for example. We assume that he has the knowledge because his company seems to work, but we don't actually know that. I mean, we don't see what he does on a daily basis. What we see is the publicity side of it, the personality side of it. We see the theater and the drama that he brings to his brand. So are you saying that entrepreneurs out there must create drama? Yes. Oh, you are. <laughs> I am indeed. And, <laughs> you know, the best cause is the honest kind that, that, that looks at um, a good cause and something that adds value to the world. But I would be lying if I didn't say that a good controversy can do just as much. What about those who are in a corporate environment? I mean, you can't really create too much controversy and waves in, a, in an environment like that. You know, you'd be surprised the extent to which it works in a corporate environment. Okay. Because think about a, a, a system, and it's a socially agreed upon system in which we have all decided that we must all act in a certain way. The person who doesn't and does so competently and does so confidently stands out mm. and does so by design. Now, let's just take a very, a very small, sedate example of how that works. Go into a corporate company and ask people who here wants to do the next presentation, mm. speak in public. Nine out of ten people will go and hide behind their desks. Interesting, yeah. The tenth person who sticks up their hand and says, I'll do it, becomes the personality. Mm. The person who has the courage to volunteer to be seen in public, and let's call that theatricality, ends up being the one who stands out and does so by design. Mm. Okay, so in a corporate environment, there definitely is place for it. Let's go back to the three things. They, they, they converge to it. Let me rephrase that. They come I'll to, tell you what, let me they, give you a phrasing for that. I, I put it this way. I say experts exist at the intersection of knowledge, personality, and publicity. Now, if I could have said it that way, I would have <laughs> sounded much more like I was going to own an industry, some industry of sorts. So talk to us about that intersection point. Okay. The starting point is to realize that those things are important. Most of us are raised to think that working hard and knowing the technical content of what we do is sufficient. And it is sufficient to get you to a certain level, but it is insufficient to take you to the top of the pile. It's like saying having a qualification is access to an industry, mm. but it does not automatically position you as a renowned expert. The renowned expert is identified on the, uh, the basis that he or she is seen in the media, speaks in public often, writes often, is a publicly viewable figure. 
And it makes the world of difference because, like I was uh, saying to you earlier on, one of my favorite speakers, a guy in the United States named Randy Gage, mm. often says, if you are a commodity, your clients will shop for you based on price. Mm -hmm. But if you are the icon, they will build the event around you. Mm. In other words, when you're seen as that top name, price becomes irrelevant. You can charge whatever you want and they have to have you. So it changes the, the, the totality of your income. Your name changes your equity. Some mistakes that you made early on in your career, early on as you were attempting to own the speaking space. Mm. Well, one of the ones that I made and I've seen many um, speakers make is pricing ourselves too low. What tends to happen is that we get into the industry and we can't get our head around the idea that these days, and I'll give you the figures for this one, these days a, a corporate speech is often priced at between, say, 20 to 30,000 rand. Okay. Now, that's for an hour to two hours of speaking. But it's not actually for an hour of speaking. It's for the total value that it introduces into the company. Sure. So what we're saying is you're, you're not charging 25,000 rand for 60 minutes of a presentation. Mm. You're charging that for what it can do to the bottom line mm. of the organization you're addressing. Now, when you start out, you don't think that way. You are very hesitant to charge industry-related fees because you can't get your head around the idea that it's so much money for such a short period of time. Sure. The real problem is your own internal psychology. Because a couple of years down the line, when you're getting really good, really competent, you find it hard to raise your own fees to industry levels. Mm. Because you've now been, say, pricing yourself at, I don't know, 8,000 Rand for a number of years. It is monumentally difficult to get to 25 or 30,000 Rand against your own psychology, which says, who am I to do this? It's interesting because, of course, there is an outstanding deposit for Nicki Minaj, I think, at the moment. <laughs> yes. Are yeah. you familiar with that story? Oh, yes, yeah. I don't actually know the number. Do you know? Oh, the if number? I remember right, it was it was in the millions. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and that's for a deposit. And I don't think I would ever pay that to to look at um, her prancing around a stage. Uh, but um, again, <laughs> the value. Yeah. The 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 following. And can I tell you what it comes created. down to? It comes down to she's Nicki Minaj. Mm. That's all it is. It's that. It's the name. It's having that person at your event. And if there's anyone that is a good example of drama, she definitely is, isn't she? Mm -hmm. She is almost like the Freddie Mercury of, of her particular musical genre. It's all novelty and, and theatricality. Now that I, I think about Nikki, you've won me over. <laughs> I'll buy your book. <laughs> <laughs> Although I am going to go back and say, I actually now in retrospect feel bad about comparing her to Freddie Mercury, who is, who is a musician. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, poor Freddie. Additional mistakes that you made? Okay. In terms of how you position yourself as an offering, now this doesn't just apply to speakers, this applies across the board in South African businesses. Mm. We tend to focus on us. We tend to focus on the delivery mechanism. We tend to focus on the thing we sell. What we fail to do is to focus on the benefit for the client. And I mean, it's the most obvious thing in the world. It's the first thing we're taught in business. It's yep. don't sell, sell the, the thing, sell the benefit. Yep. But it makes the world of difference and it is so hard to get your head around. I've been in the speaking world now for pretty much 10 years as we sit here today. And only recently have I had my whole website overhauled. And in fact, it goes live in the next couple of days. Okay. With that focus in mind, to my own horror, it has been talking about me all these years. Mm. It's been talking about winning the SA championships and this book and, and, and so on. Sure. The next version of the website will be talking about 
teaching clients to innovate, helping you to solve your business problems. And that, that's what I actually do. Mm. The rest is incidental. The rest is my biography and the credibility I have for doing that. Mm. But it's what I do that they actually buy. And one of the, the oldest metaphors that, uh, that are often, that's often used to, uh, to express this one, but it's such a good one, is the guy who sells 16-inch drill bits. And he asks his mm. staff, you know, what do we sell? And they say, 16-inch drill bits. So what do our customers want? 16-inch drill bits. No. Mm. What they want is 16-inch holes. Yep. The drill bit is the delivery mechanism. It's only our means of doing that. But that's not what they want. What they want is a 16-inch hole in a wall. You've written a book, and you wrote it for a reason. And really, that reason is because there was a vacuum. Would you agree yes. with that? Yes. None of us in this country are taught to think this way. We really are by and large, taught to think that we must master the technical skill and follow the prescribed route. In other words, get into a big, safe corporate company and work your way up. Mm. I think that sort of thinking is at least 30 years outdated. Mm. It doesn't work anymore. Also, if you go right the way back to the Industrial Revolution era, people were taught not to be a face, a voice, an opinion, a thinking human being yeah. in their roles. They were taught to be a perfectly functioning cog in a system. And the more quietly you performed the role of a perfectly functioning cog, the better, the better it was and the happier everyone was. The industry, all industries, have now gone 100% the opposite way. Mm. It is the thinker, the innovator, the one with the personality, the controversial views, that is the most rewarded in almost all industries. And we are not taught to think that way. In fact, the genesis of, of uh, thinking about this book was one simple event in my little life. Mm. I was sitting in my, my home office a couple of meters from us here, and uh, the phone rang. And it was a phone call from a, uh, a multinational organization that I had no prior contact with. I'd mm. never marketed to them, never sold to them, uh, no previous connections. And the guy on the other side of the line used an interesting phrase. He said, Someone told us you're the person to talk to about. Okay. And I thought that was fascinating. And I put down the meeting in my diary and, it, you know, it's new business, so you're happy. 20 minutes later, the phone rings again. Okay. And another company, a lady, uses the same phrase. All right. Someone said you're the person to talk to about. And that second time, the penny dropped for me and I went, hang on a second. How did that happen? Mm. And more specifically, how do you continue to make that happen on purpose? How do you get that phone ringing and people saying that by design? Because really, expert positioning is just the art of putting your name at the end of that hypothetical sentence someone said we should talk to you about. Mm. And, and that's when your name must be front of mind. Very interesting. We've spoken about this intersectional convergent Knowledge, point. personality, and publicity. Yep. Yeah. Talk to us about what else we can expect to read in the book. Well, some of the, the very practical and simple things that I say are, for example, find platforms. Do speak in public, do be seen in the media, do offer your opinions and your insights broadly and be seen in all the right forums. So, so I'm just thinking about perhaps a entrepreneur who quite literally is at the very beginning of his journey mm. or perhaps a professional speaker who's at the very beginning of his journey. Are you saying that he must go to the local school and talk there? Or are we, I mean, what are we talking about? Okay, the local school is not necessarily going to help his business. Okay. But let's say that you are a, a startup entrepreneur and you're in your first six or seven months and you've seen a couple of things that you've done that really haven't worked and you've seen a couple of little things that you've done that really have. You've got an article for Entrepreneur Magazine on your hands. Mm. And it's just a simple one. You don't have to claim anything more than you already know. 
But you can claim what you do know. That sure. belongs to you, and you can represent it with confidence. So you might get hold of the editors of Entrepreneur and uh, send in an article stating who you are and what you're doing and the, you know, the, the fascinating nature of your journey and saying, can I offer some value to your readers? Mm. Now, that's the key. You're not, you're not writing an advertisement for your company. You are offering genuine value for others on how to. Okay, great. And the more you can offer genuine value to editors, to broadcasters, to conferences, the more often you will be taken on board and they'll say, yes, come and talk to us. All of that results in incidental marketing. Sure. Let's shift over then to a corporate environment. So we've spoken about a startup entrepreneur. What could a person in a corporate environment then do? Uh, where do they go to speak or to be seen? I'll give you a great seen? one for that. Sure. Let's pick on Gibbs, the uh, Gordon Institute of Business Science. Great. Um, I, I did this presentation, How to Position Yourself as an Expert, at a meeting a few months ago at which one of their competitors, the, the head of marketing for Gibbs's uh, third closest competitor, was mm. sitting in the audience. Okay. And afterwards he came up to me and he said, I had such a, a revelation, a, sort of a penny drop moment when you spoke about the personality driving a brand. Mm. He says, because we have the same textbooks as Gibbs. We have the same courses, the same information. It's all identical. And yet Gibbs are always at the top of the pile. Mm. And he says for years it's been frustrating him. And he used a, an, a beautifully alliterative phrase, and I, I wish I'd heard this before I'd written the book. It has mm. to go into the second edition of the book. Okay. He said, the difference is in the dean. Now, the dean of Gibbs is always seen speaking in public, in the media, talking about controversial things to do with our nation, what's going right in education, what's going wrong, what's going right in the business world, what's going wrong. He's always out there. And he says, that's what makes the difference. And that translates into money for Gibbs. People mm. look at him and consequently at Gibbs as something energetic, strong, innovative, as, as truly active in the South African market. And their product is identical. So to, to sort of sum that one up, you're almost saying when your company looks identical to your competitor's company, stand on the roof and wave a colorful flag. Do a Richard Branson. I mean, that's exactly, exactly what that. it is. Be the Branson of your industry. The difference is in the dean. Let's, let's pull back and let's consider a future CEO who is a high potential executive within an organization. He, he can't necessarily get onto the roof and wave a flag. He doesn't have that kind of mandate or isn't allowed to do something like that. What does a person like that do? Well, of course, you've got to start working your way up. And the same, uh, the same positioning techniques work at every level. It's be seen speaking in public. It is have a strong and controversial view and stick to your guns. Mm. You know, most of the time we, we try to avoid conflict and we try to avoid embarrassment. Mm. It is very much human nature. And the result of wanting to avoid conflict and embarrassment is that we don't speak in public and we don't champion a strong viewpoint. Now, if you can zoom back far enough to look at this whole corporate thing and go, it's a game. It's a system. It's a bunch of human assumptions that we all mutually uphold. Mm. A corporate entity and its culture and its rules and all of that nonsense doesn't really exist in any sense that is eternal. It's a stack of assumptions piled on top of one another. If you have stronger assumptions and a stronger personality and you are willing to champion them, you can rise above a system. And, of course, it means a little bit of conflict, it means a bit of fraying at the edges, and it means a heck of a lot of courage on your part. Mm. Clarkson is broadly hated around the world, but he is also broadly loved around the world, and he doesn't care about either one. So it's essentially like saying, if you can handle a stack of dislikes on the YouTube video of your life, you can rise to the top of the pile. 
I was privy to a conversation between two people that I won't mention, and they were talking about haters. People I who can't stand that word. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I mean, it's, it's used all the time, but yeah. it's not a word. <laughs> yeah, it, it is terrible, isn't it? And they were talking about these haters. <laughs> and one of them said, but these guys are my biggest fans. And that was a very interesting phrase because the people that dislike him follow him incessantly yes, so that they can... they're passionate about what he does. Exactly. So, whether it's love or hate. And there's your PR. Yeah. And it is immensely difficult, especially if you are a sensitive, introspective human being, to separate yourself from that. But mm -hmm. once again, if, like a psychopath, you can zoom back far enough to look at it and go, this is just a game. It's mm -hmm. a set of systems and rules and laws that we make up and we change when we want to you can almost laugh at what it is and play with it. Mm. Now, there's a degree to which that's cynical, but if you're doing something good and championing the way things should be, then by all means be cynical about the system mm. and change it for the better. Mm. Consider, if you had to take Jeremy Clarkson and put him back a 100 years into the Industrial Revolution, he would look at that and go, what a load of nonsense. It's all these severe overlords who are telling me not to have an opinion. And to whatever extent he would be successful doing it, he would definitely fight against a system like that. And chances are he'd end up at the, you know, the, the, the helm of some kind of a revolution. Sure. But the thing is, people at that period in time looked at it and went, ooh, this is the way the world is, and we are terrified of our leaders and must be subjugated. We sit here now and we go, that was ridiculous. Mm. No, very, very good point. Let's pull back to you again and your journey and, and so on. So finish the sentence. Every day my highest priority is to ensure... How do I do this one without getting into trouble? <laughs> that my browser tab has been cleared before my wife gets home. <laughs> okay. That's, a, that's an that important was, that was one. That's quite good, actually. <laughs> Every day, my highest priority is to ensure that I reach for my highest level. I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. Please. When you, talk, when you um, see people talking about the, the making of sitcoms on TV... Things like Frasier and the Big Bang Theory have gone to the top of the pile and have become some of the biggest, highest money earners of all time. Mm. The reason they've done that is that the makers were idealistic. They didn't say, what can we do to pander to the lowest common denominator? Okay. Instead, they said, what's the very best we can do? Some of the writers of Frasier were actually quoted as saying, none of us are as smart as Frasier, but collectively we are. Mm. We create him, we sustain him, we make him come alive. Mm. And I think that's wonderful. And I have great disrespect for an approach that says, let's pander, let's bring it down a level, let's make it stupider. I deeply believe in the idea of doing the very best you can in whatever endeavor you're following. Mm. And... If I'm writing a book, I do the best book that I possibly can. If I'm doing a speech, it is the best that I can possibly bring to it. And I think that's an important philosophy because it causes us to grow, to innovate, to learn, and not to cynically look at a market and go, eh, I'll just tap the idiots. Even if the idiots make up the majority. Do you know what, what's weird, though, what's counterintuitive about it is most examples you'll find where people haven't done that, where they've gone for the highest possible thing, they're earning more. We mistakenly assume that pandering to the lowest common denominator is worth more money. I don't believe it is. Mm -hmm. In almost everything that I see, the people who have gone, let's do the purest, best thing we can. Pixar is a beautiful example. The, the internal nature of Pixar, I'm reading a book now called Creativity Inc., okay. which is about the corporate culture and how it was grown. Everything they do is aiming for the highest possible everything. 
And they don't do this pandering and, and dumbing down and so on. They go the best of what everyone can offer all the time. Mm. And they find ways to encourage and, and to, to make that happen. Almost every single Pixar movie ever created has gone to number one. Sure. And most of them have been at least in the top three highest earning movies in their years. Mm. Tell me about pandering and dumbing down to make money. It doesn't work. Very good point. Very good point. What's the best advice you've ever received? My standard seven high school teacher, Mrs. Watzlawick, took me aside after geography and she said, I have just seen the IQ scores and you are the laziest bastard in the school. <laughs> she used that word. That was her exact word. <laughs> and to this day, I respect her for it and for saying that more than most people who have ever spoken into my life. Mm. It was an important thing to say. And she said it straight out. And that, that's almost <laughs> kind of what I'm saying with expert positioning. Don't do corporatees. Don't do jargon. Don't be politically correct. Be a strong advocate of truth and a, and a good, strong, controversial view. She had my best interests at heart, but she wasn't going to mince words in terms of how she said it. What did you take I respect that. Well, I mean, it's been echoing down the years for me. It's, and, and, and I've constantly gone back to that and gone... Should I be doing more? Should I be giving more of myself? And often the answer is yes. Mm. And I look out for laziness in myself and I try and demand more of myself. Mm. And I just can't. And, and also, I look at that model of communicating with people and I respect it. Mm. It's that harsh truth for someone's own good. Mm. She, I mean, she genuinely cared about me, as, as harsh as that may have sounded. Sure. And I respect that. What one habit do you attribute your success to to this point? I think I have developed the ability to make ideas come alive and i think mm. i'm quite good with that and that's very important in the world of writing and in the world of speaking i can take a fairly abstract concept and i can make it come alive for people so mm. in in ways that they go wow i've never looked at it that way before and then hopefully in ways that they then go i can use that in my world mm. so I, I think it really is it's a combination of communication and storytelling and uh, I think that has been my, my primary driver, the thing I care most about, and that the thing that has contributed the most to my, my career and growth. Okay, lovely. What should future CEOs, our, our future CEOs community be studying over and above maybe a formal, uh, oh, under, a, a formal undergraduate? Can, can or, I jump right in there? Or, or, hold on. Okay. <laughs> or, no, I'm jumping <laughs> at the bits. I've got to answer. <laughs> or, or even an advanced qualification like an MBA. Okay. Here's the answer. Start off by reading a book called Excellent Sheep. Or get it on Audible and just listen to the book. I can't pronounce the man's name. It's something like Doroshevich. Okay. <laughs> you have to you know, tear out your own tongue in order to say it. Sure. Excellent Sheep. It is a critique of the idea that we force kids into very narrow, very technical fields. Mm. And in so doing, we give them an education that is relevant for about two years after they graduate mm. and then is gone because technical innovation moves on so quickly that what they learn is obsolete two years down the line. Mm. He goes on to say that when people study things like the liberal arts and soft skills, whether it's philosophy, communication, politics, things down those lines, sure. Those kids, those young varsity students, typically outperform people who have studied a technical field in almost everything. 
Now, he goes into the specific things, like it's in verbal skills, it's in reasoning skills, it's in uh, strategic planning and thinking, the ability to see consequences. In just about every mental capacity you care to name, the people who have studied liberal arts outperform the others. That's very interesting. Now, someone like a James Cameron, the um, arguably the most successful filmmaker of all time, he, he wrote and produced the two most successful movies ever, mm. Titanic and Avatar. Sure. In a, a recent article, he was quoted as saying he does not use a single skill that he used when he started out. Everything has now been replaced, redundant, it's changed, it's moved on. Very interesting. Yes. His core skills are the human things. It's storytelling, the, the ability to communicate, the ability to lead. It's all those things. Mm. Sticking with the sort of sci-fi example, the way I always say it is, by all means, study a narrow field if you want to be Scotty on the Starship Enterprise. Sure. But if you want to be Captain Kirk leading the Scotties, you need to understand a little bit about Scotty's world, but you also need to be a rebel, a cowboy. Uh, you have to have knowledge of just about everything. Mm. So the thing that I would advocate is I say read broadly. I'm usually reading three or four, four or five books at the same time, okay. and they are about everything. I mean, I, I read things on, on bodybuilding, on innovation, on cars, novels, horror novels, um, and I'm, I'm usually watching CNN as much as I'm watching Phineas and Ferb on the Disney Channel. Sure. And I often find Phineas and Ferb the more intelligent of the two. <laughs> but, you know, broadly interested in the world around you, that's what you need. And uh, I, I studied communication and philosophy through UNISA. And I've got to say, I've never once been asked what my marks were or if I have a qualification. And I am now 33 years old. From my mid to late 20s, I was standing on a stage and helping high-level CEOs to think about their problems and earn more money for their organizations. Mm. And I mean, obviously, this sounds like bragging, but it goes to, to answering the question. It's because I was taught how to think. I have the advantage of not having been raised in a very narrow, very um, specifically technically oriented field. I can think more broadly, and for that reason, I can bring it to the system. Any other books you'd recommend? Um, when I'm Monarch of the Universe, everyone will have to read Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Beyond being monarch of the universe. <laughs> That's on the bucket list. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Ex excellent goal. Right next to uh, something to do with Nigella Lawson, but I, I, I can't tell you about that. Yeah, we, yeah. Won't, we won't go down that road. <laughs> and this is also recorded, so your wife will be listening. You promise you're going to edit that out? Um, no. I... <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Let's talk extortion. <laughs> if you could go back in time and speak to you as a 20-year-old, what counsel would you give yourself? I'm told that the phrase, do not be afraid, appears in the Christian Bible 365 times. Mm. And of course, people pick up on that and they say that's once for every day of the year. Okay. That's the same advice I would give myself. Mm. It's all a game. It's all a system. It's like at, at some point, as you get a little bit older, you realize it's the matrix and you start to see the numbers running around you. Mm. And you start to realize that older people and authority figures who are angry with you have no bearing over your life. The threat is not real. It is all a game. Mm. Learn the game, see the game, play the game, and understand that there are levers everywhere. All you need to do is not be in awe of the matrix. Step outside of it, look at it, laugh at it, get on with it. Mm, very nice. A final word. You're a professional speaker, so I know you've got something to say. I've always got one more thing. <laughs> <laughs> You're an author of really a, a great book, Another book's Thank coming you. out. Just mention that quickly. Yeah, the first one, Own Your Industry, How to Position Yourself as an Expert, and that's with uh, Penguin Portfolio. Uh, the second one with them as well, coming out early 2015, 
is, it's tentatively titled, Relentlessly Relevant, 50 Ways to Innovate. Great title. Yeah, thank you. And uh, the, the basic idea, the same format as this one, 50 different ways too, but this one is all about business innovation mm. and how to own your industry by innovating and coming up with the next great idea or internally innovating and changing the way you do things, whatever the case might be. Okay, great. So before we part company, a final word. Cool stuff. Two quick thoughts. One, go and uh, jump onto a website, uh, my little one, called ownyourindustry.net. There's only one thing on there, and that's a test where you can rank yourself in terms of where you currently are between amateur and expert. Mm. It spits out a number, and according to the number, you also then get a little paragraph of text advising you on what you should concentrate on next. Mm. So that's ownyourindustry.net. Uh, if you want to subscribe to a newsletter that I send out every Monday morning called um, From from Amateur to Expert, Becoming the Greatest in Your Game, just hop onto my website, which is douglaskruger.co.za. You can sign up for free. And the final thought is this. You are not separated from your goals by a matter of years. You are separated from your goals by a matter of actions. And that puts the ball back in your court. I'm just trying to analyze my life against what you've just said and uh, <laughs> it's, it's a terrifying comparison it's a it's a very interesting comparison douglas kruger thank you for your time Absolute thank you pleasure. for sharing your wisdom and your insights and thank you for contributing meaningfully to our future ceos community it's a, been a joy and a pleasure thank you that was douglas kruger if you would like to make contact with him Use the details that he has shared. If you don't remember them, you'll find them on the summary page on our website. I'm Gareth Armstrong. It's great to have been with you again. Thanks for joining us today on Future CEOs. And we hope you're feeling inspired and ready to take action. Head over to future-ceos.com for show summaries, recaps, articles, and other resources aimed at fast-tracking your rise to CEO status to make it even easier for you. Simply sign up for our weekly newsletter and we'll keep you up to date on all interviews, special guest appearances, new developments, and more.